I love a fresh start. I don't know about you guys, but I just like it when something just starts out new, starts out fresh. I like on a new project, you start with a clean blank piece of paper to work on. Um, I, I, I like the idea of, you know, the empty canvas sort of a thing. We, we don't get a lot of uh, rain around here, but last week, I remember standing out in the courtyard, George and I were talking a minute, and he's like, man, it feels so fresh and clean after it rains. You know, it's like the rain comes and washes everything away, and you step outside, and the air just kind of feels clean and smells good, and it's just like, wow, this is new. Well, that's where we're going to go here today with a fresh start in Genesis 8, all right? Now, we're going to begin in a, a, a smelly, soggy wooden ark, right? But we're going to leave it behind. But here we are in Genesis chapter 8, and last week we started the story of Noah. And we were looking at the, the period of time where God speaks to Noah, and Noah is told, I want you to build this gigantic wooden boat. And he, out of obedience and out of just the goodness of his heart for the Lord and his desire to glorify God, he builds an ark, an enormous ark. They go onto this, they are on this ark and all the rain comes down and we looked at the flood and we talked about all that, all right? But now the flood is going to subside. And that's what we find here today in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. Let's start by reading the first 12 verses of Genesis 8. Here's what it says. It says, but God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he sent forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove found no place to set her foot, and she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still on the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days, and again he sent forth the dove out of the ark. And the dove came back to him in the evening, and behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. So this catastrophic flood was over, and God had caused the waters to evaporate. Now, we talked last week about how this flood was a supernatural flood. It was something that was not part of the normal processes of earth that God opened up the, the floodwaters from the ground and allowed the sky to pour down buckets and buckets of rain, right? So this flood was supernatural. But here, as the water recedes, we see it's actually done with a very natural process. Sure, God could have said, and let the waters be gone. Boom. And it instantaneously was gone. But that's not the way it worked. It was a natural process. And there was this calm and this stillness 
after the storm. The waters, it says, the waters receded for 150 days. Now, I imagine that the 40 days and 40 nights of active flood, what was happening there, that would have been mostly sleepless, anxious, seasick kind of times, right? As the earth is flooding and all of this incredible catastrophe is happening and the boat is rocking back and forth and getting spun all over the place and up and down with all the waters, that would have been rough. But the next five months, they were floating on an endless sea. And I think there were probably, I'm reading in here, but I think there were probably times of some pretty deep reflection and introspection, thinking about what was happening, questioning in themselves, what just happened? What have we survived? What, what's next? <laughs> As the days go by, the weeks go by, the rain has stopped, but all we can see as we're peeking out of the porthole of the ark is just water. What is happening here? What comes next? How long will this last? Did God forget us? I mean, he told us about this ark. He told us how to avoid this. He told us to get in and he closed us in to this ark, but now what? And so they're just floating out there for months on end. Imagine what that silence must have been like as you're looking out over the water, just realizing we are in an ocean here. But the passage here tells us that God remembered. God always remembers, guys. He always remembers. And when God's remembrance like this is recorded in the Bible where it says, and God remembered Noah, it, it's, it, when it's described, it's when he's acting on a previous commitment, right? Every time that you see that God has this, oh, he remembers, it's not like God is hanging out in heaven and he's, whatever, playing tennis with Gabriel and then he's like, oh, I forgot, down on the earth, I had Noah and the flood thing, oh, I forgot, let me go back and take care of that. No, it's not that. God's not forgetful. He, he doesn't lose track. Um, and, and I do know that it sometimes feels like that. Right? Sometimes it feels like God has forgotten me. He must be too busy working on other people's problems. There's bigger issues in the world that God must be uh, preoccupied with. Right? But that's not how God functions. He remembers. Sometimes I secretly wish that there was only eight people on earth, like Noah and his family right there. It's like, then I for sure could get God's attention, right? That's not how it works. Whether there's eight people or eight billion people, God doesn't forget. We don't serve a forgetful God. He doesn't lose track. He's not a God who will abandon you. Jesus said it clearly in John 14, 18. He said, I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. God does not forget you. God will always remember. But I think that one of the key things that Noah and his family had to learn here on the ark is a critical thing for us to learn in our walk with God. And that is all about waiting, Waiting. Waiting is a crucial part of the spiritual life. How many of you love to wait? You're like, I'm a waiter. I just like it. It's just good. I just wait. I go to the grocery store and when the line's really long, I'm like, yes, I get to wait. I've tried to pull into the drive-thru at In-N-Out. I told Aaron the other day, I'm like, in my mind, there is no drive-thru at that In-N-Out. Like, I'm never pulling into that line. Are you kidding how long that thing is? 
Maybe you're that way. You're just like, I just want to wait, right? Most, you are a rarity if you exist out there, right? People don't like to wait. But Noah and his family, for at least these 150 days, plus the 40 days here and there, there's all kinds of different ways they're trying to do the math and figuring out how long they're there. It's a long time. They're on the boat and they're waiting for something to happen. We don't know that every morning God showed up and said, Noah, not today, just hang tight. No, we don't have any of that. All we know so far that God said to Noah was, get on the boat, build it, and get on it. And I'm going to flood the earth. That's all he said. So for Noah and his family, they might have been thinking, sitting there on the boat thinking, is this it? Is this like the rest of forever? We're just going to sit here and it, it's like water world? And this is what we do now? They don't know. They don't know what's going on. But waiting, it, it's important and it's critical. They had to wait. If I were to take a guess at the biggest threat to our spiritual health today as people, I would say that it isn't the wickedness of the world around us. I don't think it's the political division of our nation. I don't even think it's the erosion of our society's morals I believe that the, the biggest threat to our spiritual health today as just humans is the unyielding busyness and distractions of our lives. We have almost lost the ability to stop, to wait, to listen to sirens and reflect in our lives. And what that does is it silences our spiritual selves because we're so busy with the physical. We're so busy with the things that are right in front of us. We're so caught up in all these things that are happening all the time. We're constantly going from one thing to the next thing to the next thing to the next thing. We're thinking about the things that we meant to do at that time and didn't. And how can we squeeze it back in up here in the front? And not to mention the other things that are still coming our way. And so it's go, 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 go all the time. And I think that is what we're, not only is that ravaging our own personal mental health as a society, as a world at large, but on top of that, it's distorted and choked our spiritual health. Just the busyness and the inability to, to wait. You know, the, the industrial revolution and the technological age both promised humanity more freedom and a higher quality of life. When industry started, it's like, this is amazing. We're going to figure out how to mass produce things and we're going to build machines that will not make it where people don't have to work so hard. Someday the work day will be like two hours or something. You go to work for two hours and then you have the rest of the day to just enjoy. The technological age came along and said, wow, all those things that all the people in ancient times had to memorize and get in their heads and we had to have all these experts to learn all these things. Now you have all the information at the in your palm, right? All the information of the world. And it made all these promises that that's how it would go. We'll all move forward together and eventually we'll all be on vacation all the time and we'll just cruise around. But is that what's happened? No. The, the absolute opposite of that. With all of our technological innovation and all this ultimate access to information, we're not less stressed as people were more wound up than ever. And that isn't the way to abundant life, the kind of life that God calls us toward. And if you're one of those people today that you're like, man, yes, I'm wondering where my peace went. 
Like, I just feel like I'm constantly frantic. I like open up my eyes when I wake up in the morning, my heart's already beating too fast. It's like, oh, I got this, I got that. I'm worrying about that. I'm worrying about this. This waiting is actually a good place to start. This is a, a good thing for you to learn. Because time and time again, Scripture teaches us to wait. Specifically, and it's an active waiting, all right? There's, you're doing something here. It's not just, I'm going to empty my mind, and therefore I will be spiritually healthy. No, it's an active waiting because what we're doing is we're waiting on God. We're setting aside time and space in our lives to seek God, to hear from God, to look to God. And it's not easy because we're not patient. But try to create some silence and stillness in your life. And I will tell you, it's hard, and it also feels unproductive. And most of us have this dark cloud over us called productivity that we carry around with us all the time, thinking, I've got to be productive. I've got to do something. I've got to keep things moving. I've got to make sure that I'm always moving forward, always moving forward. But when you take time to rest and to silence your heart and to wait on God, it allows your spirit to breathe. Not only that, we see Jesus regularly doing it in scripture. Time and time again, you'll see Jesus getting away from the crowds, getting away from the busyness to take time to just sit and wait on the Father. So we don't know if Noah had been told how long they would be on the ark. Their only choice was either to, to, to wait or start swimming. <laughs> and so they chose to wait. And look what we find in verse 13, chapter 8, verse 13. It says, And in the 601st year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from off the earth. The 601st year referring to Noah's life. Uh, it said at the last week, he talked about how when Noah was 600 years old, that's when he went on to the ark. So that's where the 600 is coming about. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth had dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing, and every bird, everything that moves on the earth went out by families from the ark. Here we get our fresh start. When the time was right, God spoke. And I will point out to you that this is just, this is the only, that all that other time, scripture doesn't record God speaking any other time. He says, build the ark, go on to the ark, and then we don't hear a word until God says, now it's time to go out. And what does he say when he speaks? He restates the mandate that he had given Adam and Eve when they were first created. Be fruitful and multiply. What, a, what an incredible moment this must have been. Put yourself in, in the shoes of these eight people that are leaving this ark. That God's just told you, all right, it's time. Think about that for a minute. To step into the world knowing what had happened and what you'd been saved from. Can you imagine what your heart would be like? What, what your heart would feel like with that? 
to step into that, I think they would have been profoundly grateful. What if, what if I was thinking about this this week, what if you were one of the wives who, who just happened to marry the right guy? Are you kidding? <laughs> like these ladies were like, oh my gosh, like I wasn't sure if I was going to marry this one, but they're only the three of them, like we're one of eight that made this. To know, though, to, to, to know that you had been rescued while the rest of the world perished, I think there may have been some survival guilt going on with them, too, in this. But also a deep reverence for the Almighty God, the power of God. There's all this going on in you. There's a gratitude. There's a, almost a guilt. There's a feeling of, wow, what has happened? What's happening here? There was gratitude. There was fear. There was hope. And there was humility. And we see that it motivated them to act. And that's what we read in verse 20 to 22. So they're, they're stepping out of the ark. They're feeling this way. They're seeing this fresh earth before them. And it says in verse 20, Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings on the altar. And when the Lord smelled the ple- pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man. For the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night shall not cease. So what we see here with these hearts motivated to act is that Noah and this little family offer an offering. Now remember, this wasn't the first time that an offering had ever been made in Scripture. If you go back earlier in Genesis, remember it was over an offering that Cain and Abel had their falling out. And ultimately Cain killed his brother Abel. That was because of an offering that had been given. But Noah's first action after disembarking the ark was to give an offering. And an offering is just a, it's a natural response from a grateful heart. When we're thankful and we're grateful, it's, it's, we want to offer someone something. And, and it's just the way it is. It just, it's a natural outflow. Now, I do realize that animal sacrifice seems really strange to us. You look at this and you're like, yeah, I, don't, I still don't get that. Every time I see it in the Bible, I'm like, what in the, why? What is this whole animal sacrifice thing? But understand that it was an expression of their hearts. It was meant to be something that would, would bless God. And that's where they were coming from with this. Now, it wasn't an offering to appease God, like we'll see later in, in all sorts of pagan cultures that say, oh, wait, we've got to kill some animals. That'll maybe make them happy and, and we'll get, avoid the wrath of God. It wasn't that, but it was a way of showing obedience and saying thanks. And the Lord received it. We'll talk a little more about that in a minute. What I also want you to look at is the promise that God makes there where he basically says, I'll never again curse the ground because of man, and never again will I strike down every living creature. Now, we know that one day, the Bible tells us that God will put an end to this earth and make all things new. But until then, this passage right here tells us he will sustain life. The Bible says clearly that God is going to sustain life. So don't worry about all those apocalyptic sci-fi movies that you watch. (laughs) Um, 
even when you see a wicked world around you and you think, oh man, this world is not in a good place. God may just wipe us out again. No, he won't because he said he won't. In fact, in the time of Isaiah, uh, God reiterated this again in Isaiah 54, 9 and 10. He's speaking and he says, this is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace, this covenant here, shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. All right, and now let's move on into chapter 9. And we're going we're gonna to go all the way through uh, chapter 9 here today. And in chapter 9, here's what he says. It says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, again, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be upon every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heavens, upon everything that creeps on the ground and all the fish of the sea into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. And as I gave you the green plants, I give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life. That is, its blood. Now I'm going to explain this a little bit. Um, First off, God makes it very clear that he wants them to repopulate the earth. He's going to take this group of eight people and from those eight people, he's going to literally repopulate, bring us up to today with eight billion people on this planet. So if you've asked that question and wondered that before, where did the the ethnic diversity come from and all the different races and all that, all of that genetic diversity was in these eight humans. And from there, the people are gonna spread through the earth And all that diversity is all going to come from these eight people. Three times he tells them this in this text that we're reading here today. Be fruitful, multiply. But what he also does, and and like I said, that was a restatement of what he had said to Adam and Eve. What he also does is he reestablishes the authority that humans are given over the animal kingdom. All right? Humans are given authority over the animal kingdom. And the animals are given to humanity for food. I'm sorry, vegetarians. You have freedom not to eat meat, okay? But God did give humanity permission to eat animals. However, there's a restriction included. And it's really weird when we think about it. He says that they're not allowed to eat animals while they're still alive. All right? I'm grateful for that because that's weird. (laughs) But that's what he says. He says, no, that's not how you're going to do it. You're to kill the animal and drain its blood before eating it. Okay, so here's a little fun fact, side note for you. I learned this from someone else in our church fairly recently. Okay, I haven't known this my whole life. But we're going to talk about blood for a moment. Blood is made up of four parts. Okay, plasma, white blood cells, red blood cells, and platelets. That's it. That's the four ingredients of blood, all right? When you get a piece of meat, you go to Costco or whatever, and you see this red meat that you're buying, a steak to throw on a grill, you look at that and you're like, oh, it's bloody. No, it's not. It's not blood, okay? You may be happy to know this, all right? It's not. What you see 
in a juicy red steak is not blood. It's called myoglobin, all right? Myoglobin is a protein. It's not blood. The iron in myoglobin turns red when it's exposed to oxygen, and then it darkens when it's exposed to heat. That's why when you cook something really thoroughly, well done, and it all goes dark, that's what's happening there. Just as hemoglobin carries oxygen through blood, myoglobin carries oxygen through muscle tissue, okay? You've now been given permission to eat your steak rare if that's what you so desire, all right? So you don't have to worry, but God said I can't eat the blood. There's no blood. It's myoglobin. You're okay. Back to our passage, all right? So you're not to eat the flesh with its life and its blood, but he's going to talk more about blood here. So here we go. Sorry if even the word blood makes you squeamish. I know that's the way it is for some people. Hang on, guys. Don't pass out. We'll make it through. Verse 5 says, And for your lifeblood, meaning speaking to humans, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require a reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man... By man shall his blood be shed, for God made man in his own image. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth, and multiply in it. God makes it clear that life, especially human life, but also the life of animals, that life is important and has value. The only clear rules that were recorded for Noah and his family in Scripture There's only two. Two rules were given to them. Number one, you're not allowed to eat animals while they're still alive. And number two, you're not allowed to kill another person. Those are the only two rules that he spoke clearly to Noah in Scripture. Now, this was out of a respect for life in general, but also the giver of life. And here's the the idea that I want you to, to pull out of this and understand. Life is God's. It's his. That life is God's territory. It's his world. It's his realm. And he reserves it for himself. It's not ours. There are times in the Bible when people are given the authority to take another life, but only when that authority has been given by God. Nowhere has a person been given authority over other people to take lives as they choose. Nowhere, all right? Now, that, as you can imagine, has far-reaching implications of what that means if life is God's and God's alone. We don't have time to cover all that today, but no, life is God's. And this prohibition against blood is interesting. Many years later, when the sacrificial system of Israel was established, the blood of the animal sacrifices, the blood was always reserved for God. No matter all the things that they would do with all these different rituals where they'd take, um, for instance, grain in, in their festivals, they would take the grain and they'd have what's called a wave offering where they would literally wave sheafs of grain before God or other things when they would bring in fruit and vegetables and then they'd bring in animals and they'd sacrifice these animals and they would always, with all the animal sacrifices, they would always drain the blood And the blood was either sprinkled on the altar or poured out before the altar. There were different things that could be done with the blood, but the blood was never to be eaten with the rest of the sacrifice. Never. It was always reserved for God. 
and it was poured out or sprinkled on the altar for atonement. Atonement, which is just the covering of sin. Leviticus 17.11 says, For the life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar. This is God speaking, by the way. I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. Now you might wonder, why are we talking all this about blood? You're going to see why as we go on. So life is God's. Life is in the blood. Therefore, the blood is God's. That's the way that this goes. The life of the sacrifice was given for the life of the one it was sacrificed for. And here's what we know. Sin brings death. Death can only be overcome with life. Okay? And that system, that sacrificial system, was only a shadow of what would come. Because when we read through the Old Testament and you hear all about these animal sacrifices, even here with Noah, altering, uh, this altar's built and they're, they're offering these animal sacrifices. If you're wondering what's going on there, it's a shadow of what would come. That Jesus would come and offer his blood to be the atonement for all people once and for all. He would die that we could have life. Hebrews 10 describes it that way. It says, therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. A, a great question that people ask when they're learning about the Christian faith is, why is it that Jesus had to die? Why? It seems like God could have come up with some better plan than sending him himself, his own son, to die? Why is that the, the way it is? Isn't, there's got to be a better way. And what is with all the blood talk? When people from outside the Christian faith hear about this, they're like, I don't, I don't get it. I don't understand what's going on. Uh, you know, right now, the reason we're meeting out here, we didn't mention that to you, I don't think. Um, inside, they've got this, um, this big exhibit in the multipurpose room this, this morning of um, uh, Dia de los Muertos, Deal. So it's all these altars of um, like ancestor, you know, stuff going on. The Day of the Dead. That's that's right. Outside, outside though, we're, what we're talking about is life. It's kind of ironic. <laughs> Dia de los Vivos. I don't know. Somebody have to help me with my Spanish. So that's what we're talking about. It's it's life. What we're talking about is life. The Day of Life. It's it's not. A, that's that's what all of this blood talk is. That's why Jesus came. Jesus came to die so that we could have life. Here's what Jesus says about it in John 6. And I understand, guys, I realize that this, all of this talk of all the way that the sacrifice and atonement and all this works, it takes a lot to get your brain around, okay? So I'm probably not describing it very clearly, but I think even when it's described clearly, it's still hard to understand some of this. So it takes some time processing it. But if, as long as you're introduced to it, over time you start seeing the, the way that this works. And it was, by the way, it was, it was difficult for the disciples of Jesus to understand too, even when Jesus is speaking it, all right? So here's what he says in John 6, 48. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. 
I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews, verse 52, then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? This is disgusting and it's weird. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks on my blood uh, abides in me and I in him. As the living father sent me and I live because of the father, so, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Now he went on and explained to his disciples, guys, I'm not talking literally about my flesh and blood. I'm talking about a spiritual thing. But at the same time, I literally, physically must die and give my blood as an atonement for the sins of the world. Even then, it's still difficult for us to understand. But in God's grace and goodness, he has provided a way for death to be overthrown. And he did it with the blood of Jesus, his own life. He gave his life for ours. Life is God's. Life is in his hands. That's why he had reserved blood for himself. Now let's go on. Um, hang in there. We're, we're doing well. We're almost done here. Then verse eight, in Genesis nine, verse eight, it says, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. And with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the livestock, and every beast of the earth with you, as many as came out of the ark, it is for every beast of the earth. I establish my covenant with you that never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. And God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature that is with you for all future generations. I have set my bow in the cloud, a rainbow. I've set a rainbow in the cloud and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. When I bring clouds over the earth and the bow is seen in the clouds, I will remember my covenant that is between me and you and every living creature of all flesh. And the waters shall never again become a flood to destroy all flesh. When the bow is in the clouds, I will see it and remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. The covenant is established by God. It's established by him. Every time it rains, God can look and see a rainbow, which he uses as a sign of his covenant to the earth. A covenant to never flood the earth again. Now, last week I gave you a definition of what a covenant is. Uh, and it's up on the screen again here for you. A covenant is a sacred bond between two parties. This was God's promise that he would forever uphold. And this is the first covenant that we see in scripture. 
We'll see more as we study the Bible. So, but it's important for you to understand how this works. It's different than just a, a simple contract between people. Um, it's different than a, a you know, if, if and then this happens. If you do this, then I will do this. It's a covenant's different than that. And in this case, the way it works is God honors both sides of the agreement. God is the one who holds the covenant together. Both ends, man or creation's end and his own. He says, I'm covering it, both sides. No matter what happens, I'm God. I'm gonna take care of it. It's all gonna happen the way I see it. But it's important for us to see because it's important to see God's relationship to humanity. He has chosen to covenant with us. The problem is we are incapable of keeping up our side of the agreement. So time and time, again, we'll see God covering both sides. He loves us that much. Now, we wrap up here with this last little section of Genesis 9 with this bizarre little story, all right? Let's read it. Verse 18 says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan, where the Canaanites would ultimately come from. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall, shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. Here's what we get out of this bizarre little story. Even the blameless can blow it. If you remember, when we were introduced to Noah back in Scripture, it, it was, it's just singing his praises. It was talking about how he was righteous in his generation, how he was blameless before God, this really holy guy. And it says he was like the only one that walked with God. Everybody else is wicked, but not Noah. But guess what? Noah was still a person like us. He was still a person from dirt. <laughs> he still came from dirt. And verse 20 says, Noah became a man of the soil, meaning he started farming, but it also reminds us that we still come from dirt. It's sad to me that Noah's final few verses in scripture depict his most embarrassing moment, <laughs> that he's drunk and naked and being ridiculed by one of his children. And by the way, if you wonder what was the big deal with what Ham did there, it wasn't that Ham just went outside and said, guys, we've got a problem. That's not, what, what's, that's not why Noah decided to, decided to curse Ham. Ham went out there and was like, guys, come get a load of this. You're not going to believe what dad's done, you know? And so Noah was mad when he woke up. But here's, here's I think, the part that is good. It's still a little comforting to know that even a spiritual giant like Noah, a man with such noble character, still needed the grace and salvation of God. And he could still blow it. It kind of levels the playing field for us a little bit. 
We all need God's grace and God's forgiveness. The Bible tells us no one is righteous. No, not one. And not only that, you can walk with the Lord for many years and still stumble and fall. And I I think that for for some of you, uh, and I know many of you pretty well, for a lot of you, you've walked with God a long time. Some of you have just come to the Lord recently, may not know the Lord, but for many of you, you've walked with the Lord a long time. But it's important to know that you can still stumble and fall. And if you find yourself in that place, confess your sin and repent. Noah walked longer with the Lord than any of us will. He's 601 years old right now (laughs) at this point, okay? But still, he could fall even then. And God's grace and God's mercy is available for a brand new believer as well as someone who's walked with him for decades. But you've got to humble yourself before God and allow him to restore you. What I've seen is with people that have walked the Lord a long time, they start understanding, well, I'm, I'm a believer. I'm a person who walks with God. I'm, I'm growing. I'm mature. I'm a mature Christian. I shouldn't have these issues. I shouldn't have these struggles. And so when they do, instead of actually repenting, what they say is, well, I just, that was a little glitch, but I'm going to keep on moving and I'm just going to keep on going. You ever wonder sometimes how you, you, you see these, these pastors or spiritual leaders that have been walking with the Lord for all this time, then all of a sudden they blow it and then people are like, oh, I guess they just never knew God. That might be true. Maybe they were, you know, fooling us all for all this time. Or maybe it was sin snuck back in at some point. And maybe they needed to repent and get right before God again. Right? We don't know what's happening in people's lives. But we can still humble humble ourselves before him and allow him to restore us. Thankfully, we don't need to go through a flood like what Noah and his family endured to experience a fresh start. Thankfully, we don't have to do all that anymore. Now we can come to God. We can come to Jesus and we can ask for his forgiveness and we can receive it. We all benefit from the covenant that God made with humanity not to flood the earth, but Jesus came with something far superior. The last verse we're gonna look at here today, Hebrews 9, 15. Here's what it says about Jesus and about his covenant. He says, therefore, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred, his death, that redeems them from the transgressions committed under the first covenant. Jesus came to redeem us from sin and restore our relationship with God. So here's, as we finish here today, here's what I want you to think about and have the worship team come on back up here. Here's a couple questions for you to ponder as we look at the life of Noah, as we look at this fresh start that God gave the earth. Let me ask you this question, a personal question. Are you walking in redemption today? Are you redeemed here today? Have you taken advantage of the blood that's been shed for you? Jesus shed his blood to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Are you taking advantage of that? Do you know that your sins have been covered by the atoning blood of Jesus? If not, what's holding you back? What's keeping you from that? Because really, can there be anything of greater importance than that? 
being in right relationship with your creator, life is in the hands of God. We don't know how much longer we will have on this earth. I hope that each and every one of you live long and healthy, prosperous lives. But we don't know that that's what will happen. Our brother Aaron that we're going to be laying to rest here this week died at 50. All right? I mean, nobody's guaranteed a long life. No, we don't know what's going to happen. But where are you? Where is your life? And I would even say before I pray here um, this morning, uh, maybe there's a couple of you where when we're talking about Noah and looking at his stumbling and falling, maybe there's uh, some of you out here today that would just want to raise their hand and say, I need a fresh start today. <laughs> pray for me. Is there anybody out here that wants that? We've got a couple. All right, we've got a few. And, and let's just pray for that. And let's make sure that when we leave here this morning, that we know that we are right with our, our maker, that God has given us a fresh start, that we can walk in that and we can live in that. All right, pray with me. Father, I thank you this morning for your word. And Lord God, I do thank you for the fresh start that you bring to all your people. And Lord, this morning, you see those that have, have raised their hand and said, I need a fresh start. Lord God, I pray for them today specifically, Lord, that you would bless them in that way. God, I pray that you would wash away their sins. I pray that you would give them a clean conscience before you. And that, Lord, when they step out of, of, of this service today, Lord, that they would be walking with their burdens light, knowing that you have forgiven them. And Lord, we put our hope and our trust not in ourselves, not in how hard we work, not in how productive we are, not in all of our great skills that we've acquired and our great talents, not in our generosity, not in our kindness. Lord, we put our hope and our trust and our faith in you. It is your work that brings salvation. And so, Lord, today we just come before you with hearts of gratitude. Lord, we offer offerings of praise and honor. Lord, and we just declare that you are good. You're glorious. You're beyond us, Lord. We don't understand all of this stuff. And sometimes when we read through this, it's difficult and it's hard to get. But what we do know is that we can put our hope and our belief in Jesus. And by faith, we'll receive the salvation that you have for every one of us. And so, Lord, that's what we do today. That's what we rejoice in. I pray, God, is that as we move from this place this morning into our week ahead, God, I pray that you'd allow us to walk in joy, in peace, in stillness in our hearts, and that, Lord, we would be able to be so filled with your spirit that we would overflow to all those that we come in contact with. Guide us, lead us. We pray these things in your son's name. Amen.